Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1, and the last time we were, really we were finishing, if you're new to the church, we were finishing up the Gospel of Luke, which took over a year to finish. It's an incredible Gospel. Uh, we, we try to take our time through it, and I just had this urging from the Lord, because of everything that's going on, even with misinformation, disinformation, we're seeing that in the spiritual realm. A lot of times believers are like, you know, I, I know it's true, but uh, I'm I need some, some information, you know, I'm, I'm getting bombarded by people who are giving me a hard time about it. So the title was Proving Christ and His Resurrection. And again, as I said in my announcements, we went through all the different sciences and just a, a, a small part of maybe 1% of all the information that's out there. But it gives you a, a boost in, when you're talking to people. We talked about the, uh, again, the paleography, the archaeology, we even talked about the anatomy and physiological effects of the crucifixion. We covered pericardial effusion, hypovolemia. I love medicines. Yeah, I love medical stuff. And, um, you know, just because one of the detractors of the theories was that Jesus was, they took him off the cross and he was still alive, you know, which first of all is, is unbiblical. It's not historical. And certainly when you see all the effects of the human body that are affected by it, you know, Jesus, he gave up. His spirit, like he let his body go when he was done dying for the sins of the world. So a lot of good stuff there. Today we're going to be in Malachi. A uh, little background first, then chapter 1. Malachi has four chapters, so probably about a month down the road, we're going to be into First and Second Thessalonians. A lot of stuff in Thessalonians, right? The harpazo, the rapture of the church, even the, the coming globalist uh, infrastructure and the Antichrist. And we're already seeing the seeds of that today. So, you know, I became a Christian maybe 27, 28 years ago, and I would read Revelation and some of the stuff, and I'd be like, oh, I believe God's Word, but I don't see how it's going to happen. Well, now I see how it's going to happen. I have friends in the military. I have friends in the federal government. And trust me, there's a lot of stuff going on that we're not completely aware of, but that is starting to sow the seeds of this globalist infrastructure. So that's going to be really exciting. And not for us to be frightened, just to have hope. So first of all, God said all these things would happen. And some of these writings are 2,000 years, you know, uh, 25, 2,600 years ago to the T. Even satellite technology, you know, there were things that God spoke about that people said, how could this happen? How could the world see, how could the whole world see an event in Jerusalem happen at the same time in real time? <laughs> satellite technology. <laughs> so uh, things that didn't exist but exist now. It's, I get very excited over this stuff. So we're going we're gonna to look at today's sermon in three parts, but the next few months, uh, we're going to have fun, right? So number one is the background. I always do this with a new book. Who, what, where, when, why, how? What's going on here, right? What's, what's Malachi about? 
Uh, so actually, I have to say this, in this area of, of New Jersey, I have to say that a lot of people say it's Malachi. Um, he's not the Italian prophet from Brooklyn. Uh, this is Malachi. So uh, pronunciation is everything. He is the Hebrew prophet of the ancient Israelites. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, so Malachi means my messenger, God's messenger. But is this about Malachi? No, it's about God. Every book in the Bible is about God. The people, see, we have to get our, you can't put the cart before the horse, right? We're here to serve God and to give the good news of salvation to everybody that we know. But, uh, so again, and whenever I talk about who, I also say God, God's first. Now, he was the last, Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet until John the Baptist. Sadly enough, Israel had become decadent as a nation, and God became silent prophetically for 400 plus years. When? This was roughly the 434 to 424 BC, right about the time of Nehemiah's return to Persia. Uh, Nehemiah and Malachi were contemporaries. They were doing the same job, but from in different offices, so to speak. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm reading about the Persians, and the, at this time, the the Grecians are fighting for dominance. So there's some battles between the Persians and the, and the Greeks. And in Alexander the Great, I believe 332 BC, uh, he pretty much conquers the known world. And that's interesting because that leads to Antiochus Epiphanes, who harasses the Jews and, and you know, persecutes them. And there we get the Hanukkah story. You know what I love to do? And some people are saying, why is he giving me all this information? Because we, our church, we always have people coming in and out. And we have people who are... Uh, admittedly skeptics. So I always want to make sure that I'm sort of a prove it to me, prove it to you sort of guy. So I weave history in with it too, because no one denies that these things existed. Uh, fascinating stuff. Hey, let's see, what? Wh what's this about? Well, God here is speaking about the decadence of his time. And the irony is that God had the Persians. Now this is unusual, right, for a historical note. What empire takes over breaks through a wall. Well, there was a lot of walled cities back then. Uh, usually, if they wanted to continue to control that person and make them a vassal state, they wouldn't allow them to rebuild a wall again. Because then they might say, well, you're not getting in again, and you, you lose all these soldiers in the process. However, Persia let the Jewish people leave the Persian Empire to go west, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, including the walls. Who does that? So, But this is a historical a truth, right? We see this in archaeology. Fascinating stuff. That was really miraculous. Uh, but, you know, the, the walls were rebuilt, the city was rebuilt, the, the temple was rebuilt. However, what good is, is a, a religious building without clergy and worshipers, right? And they had become corrupt and they had become complacent. We'll see God's complaints. It's not me saying it, it's Him saying it, right? Uh, and it, it's interesting as well, Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus the ascended Christ rebukes some of these church organizations for doing it wrong, for developing a hierarchy, for uh, oppressing people like some of the select, secular leaders were doing. So if you read Revelation 2 and 3, now there was a lot of good churches, but there were a lot of churches that uh, had a bad model. They were very controlling and amassed uh, wealth and armies like the world did, and Jesus rebukes that. And all we have to do is read it. Why did I choose this? Well, it's not exact, but I'm looking at a situation in Malachi, and I'm looking at another nation that tried to honor God for many years, 
and a nation that actually righted wrongs over time, realized its sins, and repented and changed laws, right? Uh, and eventually became so prosperous that it became decadent. And sadly, I'm speaking about our own country. See a lot of parallels here. You know, as we go through it, we see the more that the United States moves against, it becomes a post-Christian nation, what are we seeing? Problem after problem after problem. People aren't getting along. There's protests every day. We have a divided populace. Everyone's at each other's throats. The stuff with social media, the shootings, I can't keep track. You know, I'm like, oh, Lord, I pray for that. And then, you know, two days later, there's another shooting. Mass shootings, multiple people. What's happening in this country, right? Seventy years ago, kids would bring rifles, powerful rifles with ammunition to school, and they would have competitions. It would be crazy to think of that today. The schools didn't change. The rifles didn't change. The people changed. So, you know, and again, I'm not here to depress anybody. I'm saying this to show you that God is going to say, in a sense, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But when it gets better, it's going to be really good. And that's why I can be up here with a smile, and I'm not mopey, you know. But <laughs> I, So just look at these cycles really quick. You look at uh, worldly cycles of people, United States as well, the Israelites. We look at Isaiah, we look at Jeremiah, we look at you know, all these different writings, and we find God blesses His people. Land of milk and honey, right? They become prosperous. Their borders enlarge. Then they become so wealthy that they become decadent. And they become so decadent that they go away from God and become corrupt. Then they hit the bottom spiritually. And when you hit the bottom spiritually, you also hit the bottom temporally, physically, right? And then they were oppressed by their enemies again. And they, they, were, they were robbed and they were pillaged. And uh, they would cry out to God and they needed to repent. Repent means change. So they would change and God would free them, right? Bless them. And they'd start to go. It was sort of this, it's sort of like this, right? Without, without a, a spiritual compass, this is what we do in life. Things go so great in our lives that we can become decadent and then hit, hit the bottom again. Then we have to repent and say, well, how did I get here? And, you, 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 you know, and th- this, is, this is what happened. So, um, you know, Agora said in Proverbs, give me neither, neither poverty nor riches. Everybody, everybody says, yeah, give me, I don't want poverty. Nobody wants poverty. But he was wise enough to say to, to God, don't give me riches either. I know what those things can do to me. Right? People become isolated. They become impenetrable when it comes to the things of God. So, we ready to jump in? Okay. All right. Malachi 1. 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. So he's speaking to Israel through his prophet. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus said those Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. That is key. I'm going to come back to that. So two out of three is fighting against God. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. A lot of pulpits do not teach this book. They do not teach, I believe it's Romans 9, 
which also speaks about this Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The false teachers make it worse by this, and I'm just gonna, I'm painting myself into a corner, but we're gonna, we're gonna get out of it, right? Uh, double predestination, the hyper Calvinists say that God, through his pleasure, because he can, God's, God's good, right? He's merciful. But they say that God creates some people that he's gonna make sure they get to heaven, and he's purposely gonna create others that no matter how hard they try, he's gonna damn them. First of all, that's false doctrine. So I'm going to start to take this apart, fighting against God. And the word that should come to mind when we read this, when we don't understand it, is favoritism. Watch this. So the important thing is that in verse 2 and 3, Esau, who gave rise to the people called the Edomites, fought against God. This was a continuous thing, right? They were worldly. They were fleshy. Uh, and God did not allow them to be successful. So you have Israel, the Israelites who come from Jacob. They find themselves in a similar place here. And God is warning them, be careful. And, right, and we've seen God discipline his own people. We even see this in the New Testament. So he's trying to warn them. Um, so I'm going to hit this from a few angles. I'm going to use a little bit of theology and then I'm going to make it manageable. Then we're going to come back, right? So this is the foundation that we have to build in this book. So A, translation. An alternate translation, Esau I have hated, is Esau I have loved less. And this is by comparison to others and other things, right? And some people may say, well, Pastor Joe, that doesn't make it much better. Just stick around. <laughs> uh, we look at this as what's called a comparative exposition. So is exposition, pulling the meaning out of the scripture based on comparisons. Hated can also be translated. I looked this up in, in the Hebrew uh, you know, lexicon with the semantic range is a lot of fun. Hated can also be translated that they were odious to God. It was repulsive to God. It was repugnant. Their behaviors, their actions, what they did. So Esau was blessed by God, but discarded those blessings for something very trite and simple. I'll give you an example. You know, Esau traded his birthright, comes in from hunting. He's a, he's, a, he's a guy out in the field. You know, he's a guy's guy. He comes in and his brother is cooking this lentil stew and he smells it and he's, oh, I really, I, I'd give anything for that bowl of stew. And Jacob says, sure, give me your birthright. Okay. And he takes the bowl of stew. Now, little little side note here. I love lentil stew. I love the way it smells. It's got iron. It's good for you. But if somebody, if I have a brother too, and if he said to me, uh, you know, you're really hungry, I'll give you this lentil stew if I can be the pastor of the church and you, you, you don't serve the Lord anymore. And I would be like, you know what? I'll make my own dinner from, from now on. You know, that's nice. Keep it. My stomach will grumble for a little bit, but uh, I'll do, I'll make my own dinner. So that was one of the things how he, he took the things of God and had such disdain and, and uncaring uh, for it, that so this is what happened. B, and there's two more. B is hyperbolic colloquialisms. Hyperbolic was, so colloquialism was a figure of speech back then. Now we're going back 2,400 years. Totally different nation, country, where it's located, geography, language, figures of speech. They change over time, don't we? That, that's sometimes when we look at history and we translate things, that's usually the biggest stumbling block is, okay, they said this. We don't think they literally mean it because it's so bizarre. So how do we translate that? 
And the rest of the stuff is pretty simple, but the colloquialisms could be tough. So hyperbolic, hyperbole is purposeful exaggeration to prove a point. Now, if we look at Luke 14.26, what Jesus does is, again, paint myself into a corner, but pretty soon I'm going to get out of that corner. So 14.26, Jesus says, he says, it starts here and then moves to the other page, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So if you're trying to lead somebody to Christ, don't read that right away. You know, Give it a little time. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. You know, whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's start with that. Leave this for later. Um, at face value, what Jesus says is blasphemy. Because he tells us to... You know, you follow God, follow the Ten Commandments, love God, love your neighbor. So why would he say something like this? This was something that was a hyperbolic colloquialism and to be understood that if we truly love God, loving anyone or anything else would look like we hate it or love it less by comparison. Okay? So we have to understand that. Jesus said some things in John chapter 6 and he's getting closer to, you know, the cross. He's, you know, a good ways into his ministry and... He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and a lot of people walked away. And the ones who were like, that's, that's blasphemy. That's against Leviticus about the drinking of blood. Of course, Jesus didn't mean it literally. And some people use this in communion. Of course, it, we're not drinking his blood. So when the, the chaff left, he sat with his disciples and basically said, you want to know the meaning of what this is? Because the flesh profits nothing, the spirit gives life. So he just negated the the literal interpretation because the flesh drinking blood profits nothing the spirit is giving of life okay so i have to i have to laugh because um because i remember when my wife and i you know we got saved together we went up actually to receive christ together it was something that the lord put in our hearts we didn't know we would be here because we don't know the future but he did and we, you know, we were both the oldest siblings and we took care of our parents and, you know, we made dinner for the holidays for all of our family, invited everybody over. We both came from divorce. Like we try to mend uh, the situation as much as possible. We took care of our aging parents. I'm saying this for a reason. So there was a time where we were just so excited. We were always going to an outreach or, you know, a soup kitchen. We just were so on fire. Pastor Paul, Pastor Vinny. You know, we've had these discussions. You're just so on fire, you want to serve the Lord. And my mom one day had a discussion with me. And she said, she was annoyed because there were some things that she wanted. We did a lot for her. She's still alive. She, you, you, I don't know if she even remembers this conversation, but she said, you know, family's supposed to come first. And I just smirked. And I wasn't going to get into a theological discussion with her, but... You know, she later came around and then saw, she came to the Lord, she started serving in, you know, the soup kitchens and stuff. So it's like, you know, we want to try to bring them aboard, right? We don't want to have an argument and a debate because it's just going to push them further away. But in her eyes, and I didn't do it on purpose, she felt, you always, that God stuff, those poor people, those homeless people, you know, those hungry people, those people who need blankets, so that's, so that's my story. But, you know, if you're really on fire for the Lord, you're going to get grief from those around you. 
And they may look at this and say, yeah, I kind of feel the same way. But we're not supposed to hate them. We're not supposed to, we're supposed to try to win them and bring them on board with us. I'm going through a lot to explain this because it's, it's very powerful. C, the last part is context of outcome based on foreknowledge. So in other words, God knows the future. We don't. He could see Esau's evil deeds in real time. He could see Esau's not caring about his birthright. He could see Esau not concerned about, you know, the message of of God and salvation to his progeny. He could see the vindictiveness of the Edomites to the Israelites and almost be gleeful when they were in judgment. There's a lot to this, right? So God has foreknowledge. He knew that Esau was just not going to, it just wasn't, he just was a man of the world. He was a carnal, fleshly guy. He didn't care about the things of God. First Peter 1, 1 and 2, he speaks about the different believers in different areas, and he's speaking to them and about them, and in verse 2, he says, they are the elect. This is hyper-Calvinism again. If you ever sat under this stuff, it's weird because you have even adult parents who question whether their kids are saved or can be saved. It's just a false... I'm not saying some elements of Calvinism. I'm talking about hyper-Calvinism, such as double predestination. But the saints are elect. They're chosen by God according... Right? You can't just stop there. To the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God knows the end from the beginning. He knows that these people are going to be in the trenches with Him. He knows they're going to love Him. He knows they're not going to keep trying to be as far away from Him as possible. And again, did they sin? Of course they did. You being a sinner does not negate your salvation. That's why Jesus came to die for our sins. So He continues, "...in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied." Yes, Grace and peace. I know that God has chosen me before the foundations of the world. He knew at some point in my life I would turn to Him, I would receive that message of salvation, and I will follow Him to my last breath. And it doesn't make me special. Everyone in here can do the same thing. He doesn't doesn't love me any more than He loves you. So, what does He do, God? Because of foreknowledge, He puts His efforts in growing those relationships that I just mentioned. Now, does that mean that he uh, just left the Edomites and Esau and he doesn't love them? Of course not. He sent Obadiah, which is in Scripture. It's in canonized Scripture. Obadiah was a prophet specifically to the Edomites to warn them. Right? You guys got to stop this. You guys got to repent. Who did he send to the Ninevites? Jonah. Right? Jonah, Jonah, he doesn't even want to go. I can't stand those people. And they were really mean back in the day. They were cruel. So Jonah's like, you want me to go that way? I'm going the other direction. Eventually God cleans his clock and he goes in the right direction, right? But he doesn't like the Ninevites. But God's like, I love the Ninevites. So um, pretty powerful stuff there. If you're asking the question, how do I know if I'm chosen? My answer to you is choose God today. That's simple. You choose God today, He won't cast you away. He knew that the day would come where you would choose Him. And people do this. They get into theology. Well, what if I'm just choosing Him because you put the thought in my head? What if I'm not really... We just choose God. You know, Sometimes the eggheads in the ivory towers of theology... 
they bounce these things back and forth and they don't follow the spirit of the word. That's what the Pharisees did. So if we take this in context, he loves everyone the same, but this was specifically to the Israelites who were complaining. And this is kind of neat. This is how cool God is. He's so awesome. Is that he, he sort of, God, God says, there's an accusation through Malachi to the people, right? And then there's their defense, their rebuttal to Malachi towards God. They might not have even said it, or they may have said it in, in their bedrooms, in their kitchens, where nobody could hear. But God knows. He, he has that omniscience. So he says to the people, you know, I, I love you, and you know, you're not doing the right thing. And they're saying, well, how do, how do you love me? So he's already anticipating their response. And then he sends back through Malachi the truth. Must have been a tough job being a prophet. <laughs> so, you know, I'm here. I have largely a friendly audience. Maybe there's a few that don't like me. I don't know. But when you were a prophet, you went to like, could be hundreds, thousands of people, right? Jeremiah, like he would try to encourage his prophets. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but you got to do it because I love these people and you want to serve me and I want you to go and do this thing. So it's kind of neat when you look at the, and I don't know if anyone's ever written, written a book on sort of the relationship between God's prophets and God, right? We know Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. It broke his heart, the things that he saw. Right? But God was sad about it too. So when we look at this, in totality we see what? God blesses nations and individuals. The Edomites were also blessed. He disciplines nations and individuals. Yeah, the Edomites were disciplined, but so were the Israelites. He calls nations and individuals. So this is an important thing that we look at. I'll just say this as well. At some point, at some point we have to decide whether we're going to follow the masses, the crowds, off the cliff, spiritually, or we're going to follow God. In America, it's becoming a lot more difficult. When I was born and I was a teen and a young adult, or actually mostly teen and such, it wasn't, actually it wasn't social media. So I don't know the pressure that young people feel. I really don't. I have social media, but I could care less. Do I have 100 friends too? I don't even know how many friends I have. Somebody deletes me, they want to make a point, whatever. I could care less. But today, people are very uh, concerned about the social strata. They're concerned about how they will be viewed. And sometimes they may not take a stand on what's right and wrong based on social media. So back in the day, it, with the Israelites, there was a large corruption with the clergy and the people. And, but there was some, there was always a remnant, always a small amount that would come out and say, you know what, he's right. God, what do you want me to do? How can I help through this situation? Verse 5. I'll read that again, going back to uh, Malachi. So this is a, it's a heavy book. definitely is. He says, Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now that, if anyone was to look at what we just started reading and saying, that bothers me, favoritism, if I didn't completely explain it the way I should have, verse 5 should tell you something. Yes, Israel, I do love you, but I will still take my blessings and my love, and I can bless you and love you, but I can also bless all of those Gentiles and love them as well. So we just got to look at this in context. context. Verse 6, this is under polluted offerings. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. 
to you priests who despise my name. And again, the anticipatory response of the priests would be, yet, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Well, God responds. You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. So in other words, we have a problem with some of your ways, Lord. And they were giving God substandard offerings, right? And when you sacrifice, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? Only the best was supposed to be given to God. And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? I love this. This is so cool. God is just so, he's just like saying, you do it to me, you treat me like this, but what about the people around you? Would you do the same with them? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? So in other words, just do the right thing. You know what the right thing is. You ever see somebody who's so stubborn and so obstinate that they hurt themselves? They think they're hurting you, but they just, they're hurting themselves. Verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name. And a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That was definitely prophecy. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. Oh, serving God. Such a, such a trial. It's such a weariness, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? Says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So three out of three is useless religion. Useless religion. Religion today. It's supposed to get us closer to God. If people are worshiping at a church or a denomination or whatever, um, when they leave over a period of weeks and months, are they closer to God? Are they stagnant? Now, for the person who comes and they're antagonistic, that's a different story. But in general... Does religion or does an organization or a building like this, does it bring people closer to God or does it push them further away? When I, I love talking to, you know, it's just, I love evangelism. I love talking to strangers. It's like sort of like peeling the layers of the onion. They're hostile towards the things of God. You can see the body language, the facial contortions. But, you know, I, I wonder, well, I, don't, I do wonder, and then I try to kind of pull it out of the person. Are you really mad at God or are you just really turned off by religion? Nine times out of ten, it has to do with some religious figure, some Christian who treated them poorly, unfairly, um, some person who supposedly was a religious person, took advantage of them, right? So useless religion. God is speaking through Malachi 
And the people's hearts were so hard spiritually that he had to anticipate their responses and give Malachi a little more information that he wouldn't have because Malachi didn't have uh, omniscience so that he could have this honest debate with the people and you know, hopefully lead some of them to re- repentance. And again, we see the hard-heartedness that goes back and forth with the clergy and the people. Leadership is a great responsibility. It really is. Matthew 23, Jesus takes a whole chapter. You want to read that on your own. Matthew 23, there's a lot of verses in it. He takes a whole chapter to talk about useless religion and corrupt religious leaders. And he, sometimes you'll read that and you'll go, oh, also, don't give that to the new believer either. It takes a little maturity. There's just some of them, just let them grow a little bit first. Although they might like it. Because he says to the religious leaders, you make your disciples a twice the son of hell as you are. You, you're not, your motives are terrible. And you're teaching this. You're discipling the younger people, your followers, and you're sending them off the cliff with you. Whole chapter, Matthew 23. Powerful stuff. Verse 6, they say, in what way have we despised your name? And again, there were um, sort of like meal offerings. There were... Uh, sacrifices, they would bring uh, animals, they had to bring their best in, you know, in their first fruits, right? What, what did you get from the harvest? Hey, let's keep the good grain and give that kind of worm eaten stuff. Let's give that to the, let's go to the temple and give that to God. Or that lame sheep who's got two legs and a runny eye and, you know, and God's like, I see what you're doing. You're keeping the best for yourself. And there was a reason why the best was supposed to be provided because it was a picture of the Lamb of God, Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. And He was perfect. So they were doing the opposite of what they were supposed to do. Right? Um, verse 6, in, initially in there, and again, it, it's just the culture we live in. Sometimes people try to uh, eisegete the, the culture. We, we go through a lot of dumb discussions in America, especially on college campuses. And, you know, the stuff is, is brought into the Bible. They read, the, they read the word master, okay? Back in those days, the word Adonai, you would call God Lord, but you would call Him your master. I want to be your servant, God. So God was trying to say to them, you call me these things, this great, grandiose title, but with your actions, you don't follow it. It's just lip service. I want to read to you Matthew seven twenty one through 23. It's less verses than uh, Matthew 23. So I'm going, in, I'm going to Matthew 7. This is really another powerful. He speaks about false prophets, false teachers. In context, he's speaking about the leaders, although there are people who are not leaders who could fall into this. He says, not everyone who says to me, and this is really in, the, you know, in that time where it's going to be determined where people will spend eternity. Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Lord, oh, Jesus, yeah, you know, I'm, I can't wait to get in there. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right? So that I don't mind reading to somebody who's been burned by religion. Yeah, but they get away with it. Yeah, maybe here. 
person dies, clergy member, and they find out they did horrible things to people. People get so angry about it. Just read the scripture. Well, I wore a collar, or I had a name tag, or I had a robe, or I had a vestment, or I had, you know, whatever, all the accoutrements of being a clergy. And Jesus is like, no, nah, they're not making it. They, they put on a show for all those years. Some of these guys bragging about how big their mansions are and how many planes they have in evangelicalism, right? It's all they care about, running around and dancing. And, you know, they're great because they're totally insulated. You, you, if you've got billions of dollars and, and you're asking people for a $10 donation, you don't need their donation. You've got billions of dollars. You've got several private planes and an airplane hangar. What do you need that for? You should be giving that money out to people instead of asking for it. Yeah, they're going to stand before God. They had their reward, as Jesus says in other portions of Scripture. Verse 8 is powerful. He says, uh, let's see, verse 8. Well, again, he, he says that you, when you offer the sacrifices, it's lame and sick, it's sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Man, that is so poignant. Because governors back then versus today, you, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't insult the governor back then. It could mean your life. So he goes, would you offer that to your governor? Substandard, right? Powerful stuff. Today, you know, it's like somebody who, uh, you know, if you call out sick today, right? You, know, you, you go and you call out sick. You tell your boss, oh, I'm really sick. I got a fever. And then you go on social media and take all the pictures of you at the beach and all the poses. I don't recommend that. Um, I don't think a lot of people do that, right? You're probably not going to have a job when you're done with that little tryst, you know? So, but, but people will do this, right, when it comes to the things of God because God is not like you don't see Him right over. Uh, you don't necessarily see He's not like in a tangible sense He's there. But you, you kind of, and people feel like, well, I can just get away with this. You know, maybe he's not watching right now. Um, I've seen this with volunteers over the years in various churches. Clerch, churches have closed their doors. Somebody, oh, yeah, I'll show up at the soup kitchen. Yeah, I'll show up at that event. I'll, I'm going to serve. And, and then something else better comes along. Hey, if, if the shoe fits, wear it. You know, some social event. And then you go on Facebook and you just called out of something that you were really needed for. And you're going on Facebook and you're taking all these pictures of you because a better social event showed up. So folks, this is 2,400 years ago, but you could easily make the same applications. Churches have closed their doors to this type of bickering, corruption, you know, laziness, complacency, when I was a brand new officer, I went through the police academy and I was trained. I was in training. Um, they would always tell me, most officers are killed by complacency. Do not be complacent. Yes, I've, done, I've gone to this domestic a hundred times. Keep your guard up. Hypervigilance. Yes, I've pulled over a thousand cars. I'm just going to mosey up to this car. Don't do it. Barney Fife, you know what I'm saying? Um, be vigilant. Complacency. And the complacency has a place in spirituality as well. Ah, God will forgive. Ah, you know, I I'm just going to do this. And then, well, nothing. No lightning bolts hit me. I'm just going to do it again. And before you know it, you're estranged from God. And listen, I don't say this to, to chastise anyone. I say it because God wants, you, God wants us close to Him. 
right? And as the expression goes, if you find that there's a great gap between you and the Lord, He didn't move. We did. So, powerful stuff. Um, Again, Jesus continues this in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. He wasn't happy with what he saw in some of these church organizations. Although, the some he gave a lot of commendations to, and he, there was nothing negative he had to say. I want to be them. You know what I'm saying? I want to be the church of Philadelphia, not the church of Laodicea. Verse 9, God is trying to reason with them to get them to repent. And he, in essence, saying at least consider doing the right thing. Consider my words. Verse 10, I love this. He says, you know, it was in Isaiah 1, God says to his people, reason with me. Let's talk. It's like people think that God is this kind of invisible, floating, you know, non-intellectual, non-personal. How could you think that? He's given us the ability to reason, right? Uh, Random mutations don't produce a supercomputer. It never happens that way. So we go into this and he says, is there anyone among you who would just shut the doors so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's basically saying, could somebody just rise up, close the doors to the temple, bolt them and shut them, and put a lock around them until everyone's just ready to do the right thing and stop this pretense and this lip service? It's powerful. It's powerful. Useless religion. And again, what do, what do religious leaders say today? I mean, I'm seeing some of the big ones. And I'm, I'm talking about multiple denominations. They're at these conferences. They're, they're at these conferences with uh, powerful people. Some go to the World Economic Forum. What about the people? What about the worshipers? Are you helping to get them closer to God? I remember I, was a, I deal with a lot of college students, and they, they ask my advice at some of these religion classes and history classes. And uh, one gentleman, young guy, came, and he interviewed me for his class. I said, I'd, I'd go there. <laughs> I'd love to talk to your professor in your class. I said... If it opens up, I'm there, you know, so, but one of the questions, and it was funny, he asked me this at the end, he goes, what's the most important thing that you do as the senior pastor? I didn't miss a beat. I said, helping people to get closer to their God. I'm not looking for accolades. I'm not looking for a bigger build. I'm not looking for any of that stuff. If God does it, he does it, but not looking for it. Getting people closer to God. And I just, my young adults will tell you, I love when skeptics come. Oh, I love talking to them. It just, it just, it's a lot of fun. And it strengthens my belief. I mean, I believe in God, obviously. I talk to him every day. Uh, but, you know, some of these arguments that they're fed are just ridiculous. There's just no logic to it. Verse 11. Um, he says, I'm going to basically bring my message of salvation to the Gentiles. And this happened with Yeshua or Jesus, Right? Again, Obadiah to Edom, we saw it in the Old Testament. Jonah to the Ninevites. Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of Bible scholars believe that at some point in his life, Nebuchadnezzar did get saved. Right? He just kept, you know, he witnessed to the, the, the Babylonians. He witnessed to the Persians. Daniel was awesome. He was ripped out of his home country, taken uh, hundreds of miles away. That's not fun. He didn't ask for that as a young man, Right? He's got to live in this foreign place with all these idols and stuff. And he just does the will of God. God was with him. Right? Two Gentiles in the line of the Jewish Messiah. Pretty awesome. So God, he took his message of salvation to the, to the Jew and the Gentile. Right? We have a lot of Jewish people in this church. It's a big, a big tent. But the Israelites weren't doing the job properly, so he, 
he, he kind of had plan B already ready to go. Uh, verse 12 to 14, he gives the, um, you know, he gives the, the complaints about the specificity of the sacrifices and what they aren't doing right. And verse 13, as we close, I wanted to go back to 13. He says, Oh, you say, you also say, Oh, what a weariness. Now this is, you know, sometimes to get to the Hebrew to the English, you know, some of the paraphrased Bible give more, you know, more punch to it. But the people were saying, it's a weariness serving the Lord. He says, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. It's too difficult. It's too hard. Let me just explain what this is all. I know some of you are like, I've heard that. I heard that yesterday from somebody. Right? Let me just explain this. Is that God is saying to the people. He's, God's not saying, I'm, I'm a tyrant. I'm an ogre. I saw that some of the fur was was a different color than the white fleece and therefore I'm rejected. It wasn't about that. The system in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, was a substitutionary atonement. What God was saying is that sin is supposed to separate, and again, God's saying, me from my people. But I don't want it to be like that, so I'm going to fix the problem that you, the human race, created. So, here's a system, right? These the sacrifices, the shedding of blood, the, the Holy of Holies, the priests, the Ark of the Covenant. This is really important. God pretty much saying to them, because He's saying to them, I want you all to be saved and I want you all to go to heaven. Eventually, my son is going to come down, take the form of a man, and he's going to be sacrificed like a lamb to take away the sins of the world. And he's perfection. So you guys have to get it right before that happens, because I want everyone in my kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Remember what I said before? You ever try to, somebody's into something that's so destructive, and it's like you want them to live more than they want to live. So don't get the wrong impression. Some people do when they read the Old Testament. Try to see what he's saying through this. This is the only way for people to be saved. So You've got to do it this way. And the people are going, it was, it's so weary. It really wasn't a chore. It wasn't really that hard. And if they gave their best to the Lord, God would bless them in other ways. So, and, and people have that attitude today regarding Jesus. You know, what could you be? You know, I read to you, was it last Sunday, historical quotes of people who were not believers in Christ, right? From Pliny to Tacitus to Josephus to, you know, satirists, historians, all these people, right? I'm reading to you what they say about Christians and Jesus. And they're clearly, from their words, are not believers. They have really nothing to say that's bad about him. They, it bothers them. Nero blamed them for setting Rome on fire and tortured them. There's, there's nothing in, this, in the historical record that said, oh, they stole or they, you know, they, uh, they mass robbed people. They assaulted. None of that stuff. They never took up arms. What is your problem with Jesus? Right? For some, it's just a spiritual grating. There's a spiritual blockade there. So, part two, fighting against God. It's tragic when someone fights against God because if they only knew His love for them. And for us to watch, it could be very difficult because sometimes we want it more than they do. Three, part three, 
useless religion is tragic. Instead of bringing people close to God, it actually drives them away. So, the bottom line is this. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 3.17, but that through the Son the world might be saved. So I want to kind of give that out to you. This is a precursor to the Christ. It's only 400 years away. And, um, you know, that we would consider that He is the God of love. And when we go off course, like a loving parent, He's going to say, I don't want to see you get hurt. You can't play in the street. You've got to come back in. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.